Welcome to the Scale Without Burnout podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Silito. This podcast is a result of my purpose to help ambitious business owners like you avoid stress, overwhelm, and burnout in the workplace. In this podcast, I share everything I've learned about how to grow a profitable business, stay fit and healthy, maintain strong relationships, and develop the right mindset for success. So you can thrive, feel inspired, and work at your full potential. It's Joe Lancaster. Welcome to the show. How are you? Very good, thank you. Yes, um, isolating in Leeds. Isolating in Leeds. That's where you are. Because I wasn't sure whether you'd be in Dublin or still doing the day job, or <laughs> in Leeds, or trying to do the day job from from Leeds. I guess. No, no. I've got um, an empty flat in Dublin, and I drove my car to the airport, and it's still there. <laughs> How is it? It's, it's Dublin, still there. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, no, we were um, we were due to play in Johannesburg, uh, well, in in South Africa. We were flying yeah. to Johannesburg um, when it really sort of broke. We had two games in South Africa. And the weekend just gone, we were due to play Saracens. So anyway, as soon as the travel restrictions came in, um, rather than fly to Johannesburg, I flew back to Leeds. On the assumption I'd fly back again at some point, but um, uh, I can't seem to be in Dublin in the short term, but uh, hopefully I'll get back there soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I don't want to reduce the car parking fine. I'm going to get... I've got the same problem. Um, I mean, I'm based in, in Prague and I can't go back to the UK because I can't get back in again. Um but they're talking, they just said on the news that they might start opening up the sports centres again here, which I'm surprised. So the ice hockey rinks and so on will, will start opening again. But we'll see. We've been in lockdown of two weeks more than, than the UK. So, so we'll see. We'll see how we go. Time will tell. So thank you for joining on the, on the show. It's wonderful to have you on. And I'm sure there's loads of things that we can talk about uh, that would add value, particularly during this moment. There are lots of leaders out there trying to figure out how to um, lead their teams, lead their business, how to maintain some sort of balance between professional life and personal life. I'd like to touch on that. So really about how we can maintain that balance through this, this crisis. And I've got a few questions I'd like to ask you. And if I may, I'd, I'd like us just to go back to when you first got the job or knew you were going to get the job for England as head coach. And what was going on for you emotionally when when he first got the green light that yeah you're the head coach of of the England rugby team. Well, it's quite um, strange circumstances in that um, I was at a coaching conference at the time and I got a phone call to say that Martin Johnson, who was the the uh, head coach before me, um, he said he left the role, and um, <clears throat> I remember thinking I wonder what they'll do next. And I don't think there was really a clearly defined plan. Um, so I remember speaking to Rob Andrew and I went to present it to the board and I said, listen, why don't I do the interim job for the Six Nations? So I wasn't effectively the head coach per se to start with. I was the interim, a bit like um, Gareth Southgate with the England football team. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, so I went and presented my vision about what I thought we should do during that Six Nations. And maybe, I don't know, a day or two later, they said, yeah, no, we'd like to, we'd like to do that. And they arranged a, a press conference. And I was announced as the interim England coach, and um, it was huge, obviously, because you're going from, you know, uh, a relatively important job, but low-profile job as head of elite player development, to one where you are the national coach. And um, uh, the the interview process for the full-time job took place during the Six Nations 2012. Um, so I was thrown into obviously the England job interim. Went to the Six Nations coach, um, the 
launch, which was a huge, huge media event. Uh, and it was then that it really struck on to me, geez, this is a big, this is a big role. Uh, you know, media and the profile of that event. Um, then the game started and suddenly you're, you're, you're coaching England in front of 80,000 people at Twickenham um, or you're away from home and you realise the size of the job. So, and, and during that period, I went through the interview process for the full-time job. So I think there were five other candidates interviewed. So there's a lot going on in that Six Nations. Yeah. And we managed to win four out of five. And I guess on the back of those performances and some of the changes we made, you know, I got the job full-time. Um, and it was only then, really, um, that it does dawn you, right, I'm the permanent England head coach. So it's a big shift in mindset because you go from, you know, offering an opinion to making all the decisions. And that's the difference between working for the leader and being the leader. Uh, yeah. And when you're the leader of a national um, team, it's it's everything from the national team all the way down to grassroots rugby, I felt, that I was wanted to try and um, help develop. So, yeah, the scrutiny was huge. Um, it was challenging, but you know, I was talking one at the time. I felt the – I'd been 10 years a teacher. Um, I'd done various coaching courses, leadership courses. I'd sort of followed Martin Johnson's evolution um, because I was the Saxons coach. So mm-hmm. – I felt ready for it, if I'm being honest, um, but that wasn't by accident. You know, I worked hard to drive myself to be ready. Yeah, there's, and there's a few things in there. I, th- I, could, I think many leaders can re- relate to that, that feeling, that kind of overwhelm all of a sudden, hey, I'm now the CEO of this organization. You know, 20 years ago, I was just starting out in this business and now I'm, I'm here and I'm responsible for a lot of people and people are looking at them for, for direction, et cetera, and to take them, you know, metaphorically speaking, to the championship. Um, but looking back, although you say you, you felt prepared because of the work you've been doing already, teaching, etc. Looking back, how prepared do you think you really were compared to kind of where you are now as a coach? Um, I was prepared as I could be at the time, given the fact I'd never done it before. So <laughs> yeah. nothing, nothing helps more than experience. You know, right. you become, yeah. as you become more experienced, you learn. You learn about um, things you've done well, things you've made mistakes. Um, you learn about people, you learn about relationships, you learn about environments, you learn about structures. Yeah. Um, so clearly, you know, a 41-year-old head coach or a 41-year-old CEO and a 50-year-old CEO who's done the job for 10 years, you're going to be better when you're 50 than when you're 40. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At some point, someone has to take a punt on someone who hasn't got that experience. And I, I happen to be that person. And I felt that I'd done as much as I could to be ready to go into I mean, I remember doing exercise with the head of coach development. He said, right, what would you do if you were the England coach here? Um, it, it, and I'd constantly do that what if in my mind. Um, if I was in a leadership position, what would my decision be? So when you're in that number two position and you're waiting to go to a normal position and you've not been there, I still think you can prepare for it. You can mm-hmm. go courses, you can study leadership, you can think about what you're going to do. But the most important thing, you must have clarity of what you believe in and what you're going to do if you get there. Yeah, and I think absolutely. where leaders fall down when they go from a number two to a number one position is that they they don't have real clarity on their philosophy, i.e. the values and the behaviours they want in their organisation, or mm-hmm. two, the technical philosophy of how they're going to drive the organisation forward. So I think it's, in rugby yeah. balance, it's like you, you need clarity on your on-field philosophy, the way you're going to play the game, and clarity yeah. on your off-field philosophy, the behaviours and the values you want to see in your organisation. And I felt um, I was clear on both. Now, obviously... They adapt, they evolve, they move um, with time. But I think that um, even though, obviously, yeah, I'm, I'm a better coach, I'm a better leader now than I was then for obvious reasons, 10 years of experience for a start. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I felt I had clarity on those things when I went in, and that's why I made the changes I did. That's why I brought young players through, tried to mm-hmm. change the culture, reconnect with the grassroots game, play good rugby, which is what we did. Um, yeah. And, you know, develop this young England team that, that, that everyone sees now, you know, a team that goes to a World Cup final, average age 26, 800 caps in it, you know, mm-hmm. so... Um, yeah, as best as I could be, you know. Yeah, yeah. And how did you go about developing that that philosophy and that set of values, whether it's on the field or off the field? Because people will be sitting there thinking, I'm trying to get my head around that. You know, I've just moved into a leadership role or I'm trying to lead my team through a crisis and I'm, I'm kind of winging it and I'm not really clear what my philosophy is. What would be your advice for somebody who's sitting down now and has got a brilliant opportunity to actually reset and think? I mean, that's exactly the point is you spend time thinking about it. Yeah. You know, you think about what really matters to you. You know, what are the things, what are the, the values and behaviours that you want to build your organisation on? What are the um, traits you want to display during this period of uncertainty? Mm-hmm. Um, and that comes on, that does come from experience, you know. And an experience for me is 10 years as a teacher until um, I was 30 years old. I was academy manager at Leeds, so my role went from a teaching role to a leadership and managerial role. So I developed the skills of leadership and management during that window. I went on courses to make myself a better leader um, and become a better manager. Um, So the proportions of my job changed from purely teaching, let's call it 80% teaching and 20% management as a a PE teacher, to uh, the head of the academy, which was then 33% leadership, 33% management, 33% coaching. Um, And then I took over at Leeds as the head coach um, when I was 35. So it was a bit like the England job, but Obviously, five years before on lesser, less, you know, a less bigger scale, and you know the proportions changed again. So it was less coaching, more managerial, more leadership, more a director of rugby role. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and during all those times, I'm constantly reflecting on my my behaviours, my values, my my learning, and clarifying what do I actually believe in here? What what how do I improve my technical competence as a coach? how to improve my managerial skills, how to improve my leadership skills. Um, and so then when the opportunity does come, you're, you're ready. And, I, and one of the big key points for me was I went on a level five leadership course. Well, it was a level five coaching course, actually, for rugby. But it was less about the technical side of the game. It was more about um, leadership. And it was at Ashley Business School. And it taught mm-hmm. me self-awareness, relationship management, emotional intelligence, um, building relationships, all those softer skills, yeah. All to make you know. So, you know, there is a a path that you follow that, that will guide you to your philosophy, and some of it will be because of where you were brought up, your parents. Um, you know, I came from farming background. Um, mm-hmm. It all is put together in in into one thing that shapes your philosophy, and there's no right or wrong way. You know, what I, the way I would lead would be different to someone else. So it's not to say that you have to have a particular philosophy that everyone will follow. What people want from their leaders is clarity in their philosophy. They want their leader to have a point of view. They want the leader to sell that vision to them. They want the leader to inspire them. And they want to have a leader they can willingly follow, not because they're paid to follow them. And um, that all comes from clarity in, in what you believe in. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a few things that I'm, I'm hearing just from what you've said is that it still requires some effort, some some action on your behalf. So doing the leadership courses, um, looking out, spending some time, 
reflecting on your past and kind of bringing all that together to help shape who you are as a person. So that's kind of the self-reflective piece that we often talk about um, in leadership. But I think one of the challenges a lot of leaders face out there is that they've been, they've, they've earned the right for the most part uh, to, to get into a role because of their ability on the pitch in some cases, using the metaphor of the game, you know, and because yeah. they've done so well in the game that they've got the credibility for that kind of meritocracy, if you like, of then moving into a leadership role. And I think it's quite hard for leaders to undo a lot of that task focus and that process-driven work and then move into what you described as those softer skills, emotional intelligence, self-reflective, relationship building, et cetera. What, what advice do you have for somebody who sat there who said, well, I'm just, I can't get out of the operational mindset and, and sh- make that shift towards the kind of a thinking a- a- along the lines of emotional intelligence? What, what would you say is either the step towards it or even the value of, of doing that? Delegate. <laughs> right. Delegate okay. the managerial stuff. Uh, employ, delegate the managerial stuff. Employ right. people who are good at taking those tasks off you um, and let them do it and trust them to do it. If I give you an example, um, so I'm, I'm, I've taken over the head coach of England job, which is effectively a director of rugby job, really. Um, and the proportions are changing. So leadership, decision-making, inspiring people with the vision, um, painting the vision for the future, making decisions around selection or whatever, leadership decisions. Um, let's call that 40%. Mm-hmm. Managerial stuff, so organising the weekly schedule, the monthly schedule, organising the next tour, um, managing the board, speaking to the media, dealing with the commercial team, club country relationships, 40%. Mm-hmm. 20% coaching. Now, what's the difference between me now at Leinster and me in England? The difference is, is that... Leo Cullen guys to be in Leinster um, do the managerial stuff brilliantly, which frees me up to apportion my time on leadership and coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think it's a better balance. Um, and it's not through anyone's fault. It's just through the nature of the England job. And because I was sort of reasonably organised, I was quite adept at the managerial stuff anyway. Um, but in hindsight, I probably should have got someone to have done that done that for me or someone got someone alongside me who could take some of the managerial responsibility off me to focus mm-hmm. on the leadership and the coaching side of things and I think that's the danger when you become the leader is that you still hold on to your managerial responsibilities but actually what people want from leaders is is relationships they want connection they want vision they want decisions mm-hmm. they want high level support yeah. Um, the micro detail can be done by someone else. And someone described it to me, leadership is, you've got to be brilliant with a telescope and a microscope. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a brilliant way of describing, yeah. you've got to see the detail as a leader, but you've got to see the bigger picture as well. And people want to be inspired by leaders who can see the bigger picture. Yeah. And I guess the challenge then is, how do you align everyone to see the bigger picture with you? You know, to believe in what you, you believe in. And well, just- the first, the first thing is to have clarity, clarity in your mind about what you believe in and the, where you're going to go. And you need to spend time, times like this, you know, to think about what, what that is, what that vision for the future is. Um, the reason why we're all going to work hard for this organisation, this team. You know, you've got to be able to articulate that and, and pull people with you towards that vision. And I think um, uh, if we didn't have this window at the moment, the challenge for leaders is you get too busy with the day-to-day stuff and you never give yourself that space to think and reflect. And you have to find those windows. If you don't, then you get submerged by the stuff <laughs> to do. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. do this, it's just too big. 
Um, so I think that that's that's really important. Um, and uh, once you've got that clear in your mind, then the way I went about it, so I chunked it in into groups, so to speak. So if I can, if you imagine a, a, a circle, um, and there's mm-hmm. me in the middle, and then there's the coaching team. So there's myself, Andy Farrell, uh, Graham Roundtree, Mike Cut. You know, four of us. So I go and meet them and I speak to them and I explain the vision of what we're trying to achieve and how we're going to try and build it. Then the next meeting I have is with the management team, which is the physios, the conditioners, the analysts, you know, the doctor, et cetera, et cetera, the kit man. Then I'll get them aligned and then we have the players and we, have, we sell that vision to the senior leadership group of the playing group mm-hmm. then to the players, you know, who come into camp. Then I invite in the board members of the RFU and and, and we have a meal and invite them and, and select them. And I go to the board meeting and I, and I try and involve them. Then I go to the council of the RFU um, and the professional game board of the RFU and the clubs of the uh, that you know support the players. And I go and present to them and I, I sell that vision to them. And then mm. so the circle, if you imagine a concert, the circle getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And, and then you're ultimately trying to sell your vision to the to the nation to yeah. create this one team that's connected. You know. You, you, you connect the RFU, you, you speak to the RFU staff, you go to the RFU staff meeting, um, you involve the grassroots people by um, use of the media or um, mess- messaging to get your message across to grassroots rugby fans. And then eventually you want to try and take this one team mentality. So from this little acorn, if you like, of three coaches in a room to, to a country, that's yeah. that was the way I tried to do it in my mind. And I think if I was in an organisation... I probably wouldn't do it any differently. And I think you've got to describe what the future looks like, but in detail. And you've got to tell a story and um, get people to feel it. That That's the key, isn't it? And, and because that, that resonates with me. And, and I, like, I like that analogy of kind of building it out from an acorn. And, yeah. then, and then for me, it's about how the players then see that bigger picture themselves and feel like they're working towards something bigger than themselves. We yeah. yeah, I think you know, there's everyone wants to win the next cup, the next trophy. You know, at Leinster, we want to win the European Cup, we want the Pro 14 every year. Yeah, but there's also something about is there something beyond winning the next trophy? Is it about inspiring younger people in Leinster, you know, um, boys and girls to play the game? Is it about getting the families down to the RDS to support Leinster and, and watching create that family atmosphere that you know we all yeah. love? Um, is it about actually sitting in the change room with a beer after the game? <laughs> you know, with your mates, yep. having a good job. That's actually, in some ways, you speak to players about what's the best part of winning a trophy. It's actually sat on a beer after the game. Looker in spirit um, after. Yeah, yeah. There's a story I tell about um, uh, the Shawshank Redemption and um, Andy Dufresne um, does a tax return for the guard. And um, in return, they say, what do you want? And he said, oh, I want a beer for my co-workers, as he calls them, which is the, um, obviously the, the prisoners. But he doesn't have one, and uh, and he says he doesn't have one because he wants to feel free. Because all he wanted to do as the leader of those prisoners, if you like, um, was give them that moment in the sun. And, and I heard Kevin Sinfield from Leeds Rhinos tell that story, and I used it um, um, with Leinster for East Tennessee, where a player that was leaving, and I said we need to give East that moment so he can feel free. And to be honest, that driver was bigger than actually trying to win the trophy. Yeah. Yeah, that, that definitely re- resonates with me. We had a moment um, with Team GB with the inline hockey team back in 2010. We did a workshop and we said, what, what do we want to do? What do we want to achieve? 
And everyone talked about winning gold in Pool B, which meant we would get promoted in into Pool A, into the top eight countries that Great Britain had never done before. And to play against Czech Republic, Finland, Sweden, USA, Canada, all those big countries. And uh, we were talking about it and we were saying, talking about, well, so what do we need to do more of? You know, how do we need to behave? We talked about above the line behaviors, below the line behaviors that would help us win this gold medal. And then one of the players just said, I get goosebumps every time I tell this story. I can feel it now. And he, he stood up, he said, look, for me, it's not about winning gold. He said, every team in Pool B wants to win gold. Everyone's going for that. He said, but when I arrive at, at that tournament, I want to look, act and feel like a Pool A player. You yeah. know, just to level up. And then that just expanded, a bit like your Acorn analogy, to so how do we show the rest of the young players in this sport that, that Great Britain could compete and, and play with these at that level, even if we didn't play at that level and get promoted, but at least we showed up like a Paul A team, professional, more athletic, et cetera. And long and short of it was we got promoted and went up into the top eight countries of the world. But I think it was that point you made about that feeling that all of a sudden the players connected with something bigger than themselves rather than just yeah. the result. And I, I learned that in teaching, to be honest. I mean, in teaching, you have um, inset days, teacher training days. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in any school, you've got your newly qualified teachers, enthusiastic like me, you know, driving into work, ready to go, change the world. Uh, and then you've got teachers maybe in their 10, 20, 30 years who maybe are just thinking, I just want to get to the end of today. And, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and we never spoke about the reason why we'd all become teachers. Mm. Let's work about that. We only yeah. spoke about the Ofsted inspection or the paperwork or the management stuff we had to do. And I always felt that was missing. And I felt, you know, if we'd have put that goal back in front of that teaching group, ages mm -hmm. 30 to 60, I think it about a far motivated workforce. Yeah. Um, not that it was demotivated, it was a really good school. Um, but I think putting the reason why we'd, we were all going to work hard for this and trying to make it beyond the next quarter. I mean, it's the Simon Sinek stuff, isn't it? You know, you start, start with the why. Um, yeah. And, you know, if you work in three circles, you've got why, how, and what. A lot of people start from the outside and work in what we're mm. going to do and how we're going to do it. But yeah. we never talk about the reason why. And all you need to do is just start it from the other way around, start from the inside and work your way out. Yeah. And I think there's, that's powerful from a leadership perspective. But I, I've also wondered, as particularly rugby, as the sport's become more professional, whether players lose their connection with their why because they they become so focused on the fact it's become a professional job. Do you see that in players that they lose their purpose? They forget why they play the game. They forget the spirit of the game because of the Well, I think that's the fault of the leader, if that's the case. Mm -hmm. So I don't think they should. I mean, you know, I'd like to say at Leinster. No, I think they very much understand the reason why. They, they think about the, the former Leinster players that have played for the team. They think about the history of the province. 95% of the team is homegrown. They're from Dublin or, or from Ireland, Leinster, the province. They want to play for their family and their friends who've supported them. Yeah. Um, but sometimes you need to constantly, you don't need to have a, you don't need to overdo it because the technical side of the game and the emotional part of the game is physical part of the game is all important, but you do occasionally need to touch on it and just remind them of the reason why we're all, we're all doing this. Mm -hmm. and, and that's again, the art of leadership. It's when to intervene with those moments or when not to. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so, no, I don't, I, I, you know, if, if it has lost, been lost in some teams or you've seen that, then I would say, you know, perhaps we all need to look at the leader. Yeah, I think it, it does start with the leadership. And I think um, probably not so much in rugby. I don't know if it's a sweeping statement, but uh, whether it's more in sports like football, you know, where the where the, it's their salaries are so big, you know, that they can lose sight of 
of why they played a game. And I've just been, yeah, you know, the best, team, the best teams. Though. I mean, I look at say Liverpool at the moment, and there's clearly a connection, isn't there? There's a connection between the playing group. There's a connection between the playing group and the management team. There's a connection between the management team, the playing group, and the supporters. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and that, but that's what like, and these guys are all well paid, you know, but they're yeah, clearly yeah. playing for a cause and for a team and for a purpose. And and what do you think? I mean, is it because he's been able to do what you said and galvanise the the club, the organisation, the players, the community, just around this higher purpose? Exactly. I mean, how powerful is that force? I mean, yeah. we're not talking about eleven players on a on a pitch. We're talking about you know a city playing yeah. against a team. Yeah. yeah. Um, I never forget we played Wales um, in 2013, and we were going for the Grand Slam and. Wales beat us the millennium, and, and it felt like you weren't just playing against 15 most players. You were genuinely playing against the nation. And yeah. uh, I think what we tried to do with England was flip that round and say, well, why can't we do that with England? Right. And I think Twickenham did change. I think Twickenham, you know, the games that we played against the All Blacks and, and, and other games we played at Twickenham, the France game, I think, sticks in my mind in 2015. The energy behind the team, the people wearing the white shirt, the pride the te- um, the, the supporters had in the team and the, te- the connection the team had with the supporters – it was such a powerful force at Twickenham, you know, it, was, it makes England very difficult to beat, you know, and sometimes you know, we didn't always tap into that very well being English. Um, you know, it was always easy for other teams playing against England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and as far as, you know, leaders right now who are experiencing this current situation, this moment in time, leaders are trying to navigate their team. They're, they're trying to navigate themselves through this. They're trying to survive. And, and you talked about management versus leadership, which often comes up on, on leadership programs and the difference between the two. And what I'm seeing is like the, the leaders are going to their default position, which is management. I've just got to manage everything in this chaos, in this crisis right now. What would your advice be for leaders right now who are trying to bring about the balance of managing the crisis, but also trying to lead with some optimism and hope? How do you manage that, do you think, in your experience you must have experienced several yeah, crises. Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough. It's very tough times, isn't it? You know, you're fighting a, the world's fighting a virus it can't see. Um, people have been locked down into isolation. The financial pressure, so the social, the pressure of isolating and, you know, everything that goes with it will, will, will increase. The financial pressure that people are feeling will increase. Um, and so I think it's tough and it's, it's tough times to come. So I think it does require good leadership. Um, <laughs> In fact, I think I put on LinkedIn um, an article on that saying, you know, the world at the moment needs good leadership. And that's everyone who's sat here listening, who's the head of organization. But if I can give you a, for example, of how I've tried to do it in the last week. So um, we can talk about the what we need to do at Leinster. We can talk about um, the training sessions we can do in our homes, how we can keep fit. We can do and that. We can do all that. What I did last week, I did uh, three short presentations um, that the whole staff and playing squad got. One was on the past, so this is where we were. This is where we were this season. We actually had a great season. We played nineteen, one nineteen, so it's amazing, really. So it was a positive message, fortunately. But no, we talked about the past, where we, where we've come from, you know, the lessons we've learned this season. The second was on the present. This is where we are now. And then the third was that sent on was about a 10 minute one on the future. This is where I think we can go to next. And it was me trying to describe the future in graphic detail, et cetera, et cetera. And then the fourth um, little movie I sent them was a motivational video of us playing our best rugby 
um, to to some to some great music. Um, it's from um, uh, the Great Sherman. From now on, that's all we yeah. hear. In this I've got a three-year-old and a five-year-old, so that's pretty yeah, much. Well, right. You see, well, that's my mentality. You see, um, <laughs> but it's such a it's such a great super message in it. Right, from now on, you know, we're coming home and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so yeah. I've got a motivational movie together for that for the players, and I sent it on to them, and I said to the players, I want you to come back to me um, with any observations you've got on what I've said. Yeah. Secondly, um, go back to our performances and what was our best performance and why. And describe it to me about why why it was the best performance and what I'll do I'll collate them all together and I'll send them back out to the group and da da. So that's you know, that's yeah. week's exercise. Yeah, yeah. Then next week's exercise will be right. Okay, when we get back playing together again, I'm going to give you some examples of where we can go to and you know. So you again, even though you're not actually physically seeing your players, I'm in Leeds, they're in Dublin. Hmm. Um, I can still connect with them and paint a vision for the future. Yeah, there's a couple of good exercises there that I think managers and leaders are watching and thinking, you know, how do I keep my team motivated remotely? And and that must be one of the challenges of being a, a coach anyway, and even an, especially a national team coach, because you're not perhaps with the players every day and you're trying to connect with them and stay in rapport with them. One of the things we talk about with managers is trying to systemize their coaching. So we use the analogy of the bench coach, you know, giving good feedback in the game when you're in the business. One of the most important things we talk about is mentoring, you know, and, and having some times and downtime with the players one to one. What sort of level of mentoring do you expect of yourself? You know, do you connect with your players once a month, once a week? Do you have a moment where you just say, hey, look, it's your, your time. What would you like to talk about? How does that work for you? Uh, I'm far better at it now um, <clears throat> because it's, when, when you're the leader of a rugby team, when you're the head coach, you're often going to speak to players at the start of the week about selection. Mm-hmm. And you're often saying, "Sorry, you're not playing this week," or, yeah, yeah. Um, or whatever. Yeah. So there's a managerial aspect to it that sometimes yeah. can affect your relationship with the players. You know, albeit for a 24-hour window, usually the player gets over it, trains, and he gets an opportunity next week or whatever. So yeah. it, it passes. Um, but the danger then is that you you connect on that level, and then you go back to your emails and you go back to your review and the presentation you're about to deliver. Um, and you never re, re, reconnect. So um, I've, after you know leaving England, I made a conscious decision to really try and connect as best as I could at their level. And by that, I mean on the gym floor, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I'll go from my desk, I'll go down the gym floor. How are you getting on? How's the weekend? How's the family? Um, thought you were brilliant at the weekend, by the way. Um, looking forward to seeing you. Um, train today. You know, If you can train like you did last week, I think you'll have a brilliant performance. Right. And you know, you'd be amazed how how much that conversation will resonate with the person and how long it lasts. Um, yeah. And we get, we get stuck behind our desks and we don't do those conversations. Mm. And the best way I can describe it is, it's like an invisible call between me and every individual in the team. Mm-hmm. And the more you communicate with them, the more you get off away from your email, the more you get down to the shop floor and you start speaking to them, the thicker that call becomes. So when you look down on a team, it's like a spider's web. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got all these set of connections that go from person to person. And when you get problems in teams, you get silos. So you get, well, this department's working over here and this department's working over here and they're not speaking to each other or this is not speaking. Stop emailing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get, yeah. Off, get off your laptop and go down and connect physically. Yeah. And um, Or even just say, listen, I won't mind catching up this week. Can you pop up for five minutes? Nothing, no drama. I just want to have a check up, see how you're getting on. Yeah, yeah. And you'd be amazed. They come up and they speak to you. I mean, five minutes and 
It's nothing more than that. Yeah, yeah. And that's all it takes. And I think it's hard for people to get away from their their desk or the keyboard warrior sort of scenario. But, but and it's hard because it takes emotional energy. Yes. It doesn't take physical yeah. energy. It's the emotional energy. And it does burn you out a bit. So the next mm-hmm. step then is you understand how do I renew my emotional energy on a daily basis so that next day I can do the same again, the next day I can do the same again. And, yeah. <clears throat> you know, you need to find those windows as well yourself because if you don't, you do tend to burn yourself out. So that emotional energy, how you renew your emotional energy at the end of a day, at the end of a week or whatever is really important. So that's that life yeah. balance piece as well. Yeah, and that's that huge. Yeah, and I, and I think people find it hard to relate to. They think it only happens in the business world and perhaps doesn't, show up in the, in the same way in, in sports. But I think that emotional energy and, and coping with, with, with that and, and building time in for downtime to think, to reflect, is equally as important whether it's in sports or business. Oh, so I mean, yeah, the challenge with sport is you games every weekend. So you work all week. And normally when you get some downtime, you're at the most emotionally charged part of the week, which is the game. And then sometimes you lose and you've got to try and pick the team up from having lost or you've, the emotions of winning. And then before you know it, you're on Monday again. So it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's like never ending. And that's quite hard, I think, because we, we often talk in, in business, the difference between business and sports is that you have a game a couple of days a week and you're training the rest of the time, whereas in business you're in a game every day and you might have a bit of time to think about your leadership, emotional intelligence and reflect or get your team together. But what I'm hearing from that is actually that, that feeling of, of building up to the weekend when, you, when most people are having their downtime, that's actually when... It, you know, that, that feeling of, you know, what ifs and all that self-doubt that can creep in um, is huge. And I, I think every leader can relate to that. Um, yeah. can, we, can we talk about balance? One of the things I, I talk about a lot is being able to balance business, body, relationships and mindset. So business being you know, the, the organization, my role as leader, uh, body being my health. What I, how I feel myself, how I work out and stay fit and healthy, relationships being at home, you know, the personal relationships whilst trying to do all these other things. And then the mindset, which I think you just touched on, which is, am I building in time to make sure I don't burn myself out, that I'm taking a, some time out emotionally? How do you manage that? How do you manage those for us? Because you, you're in Dublin, your family's in Leeds, and you're kind of managing all of that and being present. Can you just elaborate on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, the analogy I like probably the best that describes what you've just described is the sort of, you're juggling three glass balls. Mm-hmm. One is your family, mm-hmm. and one is your, your your personal life, you know, your, your fitness and everything else, your, your wellness, uh, and the third is your job. And what would happen if you dropped one and smashed? So you put too much, you put too much time onto one of those three, your job in particular, and, mm-hmm. and then you drop the family one. You've not connected with your kids or your wife or, or your partner or whatever, and you know that starts to fall apart. Or, or your own, you don't go to the gym, you don't keep yourself in good nick, you don't keep yourself mentally fresh. You know you're eating bad food, mm-hmm. etc. Et and one of them smashes. You know you never you never recover really. Yeah. So getting that balance right is absolutely key. Now, <clears throat> obviously for me, in some ways it's it's a challenge because obviously I'm in Dublin. I, I live in a flat on my own. Um, I commute back to Leeds, so I jump on a plane, I try and get back. And there's no doubt, I miss massive moments. You know, I miss my time with my wife, I miss time with the kids who are 18 and 19 now. Mm-hmm. I miss the day they pick up their A-level results or pass a driving test or things that you never get back. Um, and I remember I wrote, I did a, a conference in Ireland called The Pursuit of, it was the Pendulum Summit. 
Um, so there's about three and a half thousand leaders there. And there's all these big hitters talking. And uh, anyway, Frankie Sheehan asked me to, to speak. And um, I went up second on and I said, the pursuit of excellence, is it worth it? And I put up a photo of my dad. And my dad um, died of a cardiac arrest on the farm um, in September 2018. And there are so many times since he passed away that I've thought, I can't believe I missed those moments. You know what I mean? I missed those moments. And uh, and I said, I said, anyway, the talk went around. Um, I said, of course it's worth it. It's not worth it for everyone, but, you know, some people want to save a life, which is fantastic, and some people want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And I probably flit along this continuum from saving life to making a difference all the time. But I do want to make a difference. My dad was proud of me for doing that. And he, you know, he would always say, you know, you've, 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 done, you've chosen the right path. Um, but I do think a lot, I'm a lot more reflective now about making sure I, I create, if I'm not in lead for special moments, I'll create other special moments. I'll be proactive in my diary planning. So I'll say to my wife, right, let's go away for a meal here. Or let's go away for a night here or say to the kids, I'm home this weekend. Why don't we do this together? Mm-hmm. I mean, so you, you diarize events that create memories. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I think if you don't do that when you're traveling or commuting or working, then what happens is you don't do them. You just come home, yeah. you function, you prepare for the next day at work, and you go back to work. And I think that you know, with my dad living in Dublin, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you know, it, it, I've missed big moments, and um, I don't want to miss any more. If I'm being honest, um, mm-hmm. the advantage of being in Dublin, to a certain extent, ironically, is that because sometimes I'm on my own in the flat at night, I've decided not to get TV, so I can watch. If I want to watch Netflix, I can if I want, but um, there's quite a lot of quiet time for me mm-hmm. um, where I can think and reflect. And you know, if I'm if I'm travelling somewhere, commuting to the airport, and um, I'll be I'll turn the radio off and I'll, I'll put a podcast on. Mm-hmm. I'll think, you know, try and inspire myself with some new thoughts. What's your go-to podcast? Sure. There's a lot, actually. I mean, Finding Mastery was the one I first mm-hmm. got into, which was Michael Gervais, and he asked me on there. Um, and he's very good at peeling back the layers. Very yeah. Um, yeah. So he, he's, he's, he's a very good. Um, the From a rugby context, and to be fair to Fletcher University, the Magic Academy um, in coaching is a, is a more a rugby one, which um, I would listen to. Um, but it's it's probably less podcasts. I probably led, led, led down a path. It's probably more the books that I would read. You know, like the Bill Walsh, the score will take care of itself. John yeah. Wooden's book on coaching and leadership, um, the Leadership Challenge, um, communicate to inspire the language of leaders by Kevin Murray. Yeah. Um, John John um, Gordon's books um, mm-hmm. on communicate, commit, connect. You, know, you leave the locker room first. Mm-hmm. You know, if you went into my office, you'd see like, piles of books. So I'm probably more a reader than I'm a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that. I mean, there's particularly locker room, you know, win the locker room first. I think that's... Uh, and it comes back to your point about building the relationships at the emotional side. And my experience as a player, as a coach, and, and speaking to coaches is the, they're the best moments. You know, people talk about the winning and lifting a trophy, but it's those those times in the dressing room that, yeah. you know, they're amazing memories. We've got a few questions coming through, and I'd just like to catch some of these. And see where we go with it. So, Michael Watman, uh, as a national coach, you obviously don't get as much time with your players as you do at club level, which in the current climate is similar to a lot of leaders that are now having to not having as much contact with their teams as they used to. Um, what advice do you have for leaders regarding maintaining accountability 
and that desired culture, which I think you touched on, but it's a st- quite a strong word there around accountability. I think that's something that people are finding hard at the moment. How much micromanagement should they have versus how much autonomy and trust should people be giving as as managers and leaders in business? Yeah, no, I, think, I think you have to find balance here because if you're too demanding in this period, people are like, geez, give us a break. Yeah. I'm trying to manage you know, two kids you know, who are homeschooling um you know x y and z you know parents or elderly parents who are ill and you know so you've got to be careful but equally i just think that sort of they need to hear your voice they need to hear your voice and you know you you don't have to be too it savvy to create a little movie i know three or four three or four points on a slide talk over the slide listen i just want to check in with everyone this is what i'm feeling at the moment this is where i think we are yeah. Trust will come out of this. We're in good shape, um, but we all need to make sure we just do a little bit of extra work on this detail or whatever, and then and and then post it to post it to your group. And um, so, if I give you the analogy, um, say uh, say the players at Leinster they're going to play for Ireland, and so they've they've um, they've left at Leinster. They're in Ireland camp. They're not with me at all. Um, I can still send them through a little WhatsApp message with me talking. The key thing is it's you talking over the top of it. Mm-hmm. So they actually can hear your voice. It's not just some notes that you've sent like on an email. Um, and you talk um, mm-hmm. and I'll say, listen, I know you're not here at the moment, but it's um, we've had a brilliant couple of weeks and we've done this, this and this. I'm really looking forward to watching you play the Six Nations. We're all behind you. Um, and we'll have a real good catch up when you get back. Um, so good luck. Da, 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 da. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, 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 yeah. And it's it's not it's not hard to do. Um, but is that uh, is that um, something, Stuart, that you've managed to with the playing group? So when I when I with the playing group, I want them to hear my voice inside the head, so to right. speak. The inner voice yeah. talking in a positive way, not in a negative yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, keeping it positive, and. My question was around people that perhaps are like leaders that are trying to get their heads around tech, put themselves out there on video, speak to their players or their, their teams and do things like you're suggesting with the audio. Um, was that something that came naturally to you? you know, was it because of your teaching background or was it something you've kind of had to get more comfortable with? Uh, I, th- I think the teaching background definitely lends you more to be able to communicate on a broader scale, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think you can learn to be a better communicator. I don't think you have to be an extrovert to be a good communicator, to stand up in front of an audience and inspire and motivate. Now, introverts might find it a little more challenging, but everyone can still do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why the Kevin Murray books are very good on that. You know, the language you lead to communicate. Everyone can learn to be a, you know, a st- good storyteller. Mm-hmm. Now, it might take the introvert a bit more emotional energy to do that, and you might need to sort of recharge afterwards where the extrovert can stand there and be the charismatic leader all the time. Um, but um, for me, so the communication piece, you know, I can flip between being quite introverted if I want, or I can stand in front of people. So you do learn that as a teacher, that's that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you're just taking that into the next level by just finding the tech way to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, I am not tech savvy, <laughs> trust me, but even I can work out roughly how to do a screen record and talk over something and create a little movie and send it on WhatsApp. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. I think we set a challenge. It's possible, and actually, 
everyone's having to do it now anyway. So we're all yeah. learning to go, aren't we? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a challenge there that we can set if the viewers watching this, listening in, is to challenge themselves today to create that recording and, and share something with their own voice that's inspirational. And, and there was something else you touched on, which I think is often neglected, but is the story. You know, the, 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 the war stories, the locker room stories, or something you can bring to life that aligns itself to providing yeah. hope, et cetera. It's very I, I, I just really, I did this leadership talk for, uh, it was Dublin Airport, actually, um, the Dublin Airport. And um, there was a lady contacted me afterwards. She said, oh, I can have a follow-up. And we had this follow-up um, meeting as I was passing through the airport, funny enough. Uh, and she said, I struggle with stories. She said, I don't know where, you know, I'm not that creative. And I said, they're everywhere, though. You just need to look for them. And you need to, you need to sort of, the Shawshank Redemption story or whatever. And people yeah. remember the story and just say, listen, I saw this TV program or I was watching this thing on YouTube or, you know. So you have to, I'm not particularly creative. So um, it doesn't come naturally to me. But if I can quieten my mind down by shutting the phone down, turning off the email, going for a walk, mm -hmm. I can think of creative things that can inspire. I can be in a car listening to The Greatest Showman. <laughs> <laughs> Come up with a cheesy movie, but no, it's not a cheesy movie. Actually, a motivational movie because yeah, it's, it's I watched it and I, I've watched it about five times, and the lads have come back saying, "Oh, I love the movie." It's about the underdog, isn't it? To a certain extent. Okay. Um, there's another question here from David Green. He says, Stuart, "How much emphasis do you put on communication at a time like this, related to your coaching background?" I think we've kind of touched on that. Um, to a certain extent. I hope we we answered that question for you, David. Uh, ben Cosby, big rugby fan, who I've uh, is always checking in. Uh, great content that he says thank you congrats on the, the lens to work has been great to see the rewards and the work valued by the players so highly so it's just i think a nice compliment yeah. from ben cosby there and kevin golding what podcasts did you mention well i'll put them in the uh the list anything that you've got or books i think we can get a list of books from you oh yeah definitely in the list well just on that as well um i think for anyone who hasn't connected on linkedin um I've put a load of content on LinkedIn. I should have promoted my own podcast, actually, funny enough. Um, I did this morning News Talk, uh, with News Talk in Ireland. And Ireland have got this great radio station, News Talk, which has got a subsection for sport called Off the Ball. And it's a bit like Radio 5 Live, but they've got so much time to put content in. So we created a leadership um, leadership questions, it was called, I think. Yeah. Um, and it was me and a guy called Joe Gilroy interviewing people who I'd met in leadership positions, who I think people would have been interested to listen to. Mm -hmm. So if anyone's out there who hasn't connected me on LinkedIn, you can access all those podcasts by just accessing my posts. Yeah. And, okay. and not only that, I mean, you've probably seen it. You know, I've put the Bill Walsh stuff from the book, the notes from that on, on there, the John Wooden stuff, um, the best books I've read, the notes from there. Um, there's a leadership course on Udemy that I've got that's, that people hopefully can sign up to. It's yeah. Well, I, what I'll do is I'll put all the links then in the, in the comments yeah. and I'll yeah. share this so everyone's got a – Got access yeah. to that. There's an interesting question here um, from Alistair McCrone. Uh, it's a more personal question. You said, Stuart, was your grandfather part of, I'm not sure how you pronounce this, Messrs, Lancaster and McCrone, sheep dealers in the 1950s? 1950s? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's some sort yeah, of connection. My, my grandfather, we, we, were a, we were a dairy farm and a sheep farm. Um, yeah. So that'd be my, gran, my granddad, um, Frank Lancaster. Could be, could be. If it was yeah, still based, open the connection. Um, <clears throat> certainly, the Lancaster name has been certainly in Colgate, where I'm I'm from. It's been it's been in that 
that area for generations way beyond my grandfather yeah yeah there you go so there could be a connection there alistair thanks for tuning in um samuel daltry daltry sorry sam um hi Stuart. any tips for confidence in times like these i think we'll make this the last one because we've been going for a while now thank you i appreciate this Stuart. i know you're a busy man um how to have more confidence and also raise people's confidence levels in business apologies i've only just been able to jump on this if this has already been answered um, but I, we haven't really touched on the confidence piece. I mean, you mentioned the WhatsApp and dropping a message and letting people know, hey, well done in training, et cetera. Um, what I was getting from that, Stuart, is, is it goes back to the growth mindset. And I know you're a fan of uh, Matthew Side and his black box thinking. But if we focus on the activity, what took place, what worked well, I was that's what I was getting from what you said earlier is <coughs> yeah. like activity and the effort. I think confidence comes from competence. Mm-hmm. And confidence, confidence comes from preparing for, to, to do the work, yeah. So yeah. you get more confident because you've done the work and you are become more confident as a leader. I mean, this notion that leaders are born and, and can't be improved is wrong in my mind. Clearly, there are people who, who are natural leaders, but everyone can improve to be a better leader and everyone can improve to be a better communicator. Everyone can improve to be a better manager. Everyone can improve to be a better coach. Um, and if you study... You know, if you wanted to learn to be a plumber, you'd study to be how to be a good plumber. You want to be a good leader, study how to be a good leader. And yeah. uh, and, and if you do that, then the the your competence will improve and your confidence will improve proportionally. Um, and there's a I'll finish with this sort of thought as well. Part of that is um, credibility. So as your confidence and your confidence improves, your credibility improves. And if you imagine a, a graph. Where naught, you have zero credibility. 100 is the most credible person in your organization or in your sphere. We all enter this at different points. So if you're a young leader, like this, this guy said, um, and you're on, say, 20 points out of 100, and you, you hold your first meeting and it, you prepare well, you inspire them with the vision, and perhaps you're on 22 points at the end, and then you handle the relationship well, 24 points, and then you handle the next meeting well, 26 points. But then next Monday, you you don't prepare properly and you lose a couple of points. So basically what I'm saying is you, this credibility graph has got ebbs and flows and peaks and troughs. But if your gradual trajectory is upwards, then your credibility improve and then your chance of becoming a leader at the next level will improve. Mm-hmm. And so you grow your way up through this credibility graph. Um, and the credibility graph for me is based on four tenants. If you, if you concentrate on these four tenants, then I don't think you'll go far wrong. Honest, so I think be honest with people. Now, sometimes you need to be diplomatically honest, you know, for obvious reasons, but generally you're honest, so you've got high integrity. Um, You've got technical competence, so it's no good me going into, you know, any business, I wouldn't have a clue, you know, how to run it. I couldn't just go in there and be a leader in a business I've got no idea about, you know. My area of interest at the moment is rugby it could be back into teaching or whatever and and i would i would study to be competent technically competent as a a rugby coach so uh, honesty um competence forward thinking and planning so this is the difference between leaders and managers leaders are forward thinking and planning they 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 turn the page of the diary over and they're already saying to the people listen i know we're going to come through this and by the end of this year we're going to be this and next year we're going to be that the year after we're going to be this and in five years time we're going to be there and, and you can describe it. So you've got this forward thinking and planning, this vision for the future. Um, and then the final, probably the most important one, is you do what you say you're going to do. 
because there's nothing that erodes credibility more than someone who says they're going to do one thing and does the other. Um, so you say you're going to return an email and you don't. You say you're going to return a phone call and you don't. You say you're going to speak to someone about you know a performance issue and you don't, mm -hmm. or whatever. You know, don't make promises you can't do. You know, um, do what you say you're going to do, and then your credibility will rise. You'll go up the credibility graph, but it works the opposite way. You handle a relationship badly. Don't inspire people with a vision of the future. You lose points. You lose points. You, and eventually, you get down to say from 80 points, you come incredible. You're on 20 points. People have a meeting behind your back. We need to stay out. Way more points. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. Building the points and those four four areas yeah. you talked about was honesty, technical ability, forward planning, and do what you say you're going to do. Correct. Yeah, very nice. I like that. I think that's a nice place to end. Um, and just people saying thank you. And uh, we'll, these guys are going to connect with you on LinkedIn and f follow your content. Is there any place? What's my LinkedIn blow? <laughs> it's going to blow up now. Yeah, I, think, yeah. I think there's a limit. I've got 12,000 at the moment, which is brilliant. I think there's a limit, like 15 or something. So yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It might blow it up. Um, so I, I really appreciate your time, Stuart. There's so much value in what you've shared with us. And I think um, those that are watching the replay of this or listening to the podcast, um, I'm sure there are things in there that are going to really help you navigate this this transition that we we are going through um Stuart, is there any anything else from your perspective where you'd like to send people um that want to find out more information is linkedin the best place uh, yeah yeah i'm not great on social media if i'm being honest so i tend to try and stay away from it as best i can but i decided um to do the linkedin one um because i want i just wanted to share what i'd learned um yeah but i do have that course on udemy um and udemy got such good discounts you can pretty much get there's like 30 different presentations all about building your credibility, uh, emotional intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. You can probably get it for a tenner right. um, uh, or 20 quid or something, and you get the whole lot, and it's just quite easy to – I mean, it's, it's been fascinating, really, to see it grow because there's probably about, I don't know, 2,000 people signed up from all over the world. Really? Like, we're not talking UK. We're talking India, Canada, Pakistan, um, Australia, New Zealand. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll put the link to the Udemy content, content in the comments as well so people can check that out. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No problem. Stay That's safe. It. When the season kicks off again. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Scale Without Burnout podcast. For more free resources and content on how to grow and lead your business and become the best version of yourself, head over to andrewsilito.com.